0: Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a sermon from a Sunday morning. Jesus is the Lord is our statement. And you know, that's a, that's a statement of worship. In a way, that's a political statement, not in the sense of who you're going to vote for necessarily, but in the sense that to, to claim in this world that Jesus is the Lord is to defy all governmental claims of lordship that are contrary to Christ. It's a statement of worship. It's a a civic statement of where our loyalty lies, but more than anything else, to say that Jesus is Lord is a statement of doctrinal truth. Christians believe the truth. Christians have a creed. Christians sing our creed. We just did that Christian churches like ours, every time I teach our membership class, I carefully go through our essential doctrinal statement, and everyone in the class has to affirm it. All of our ABF teachers have to teach, they're accountable to teach, in line with our doctrinal statement. You know, more than once or twice through the years, one of our ABF teachers has taught something, and then some people in the class are like, well, what's going on here? And, and it's been my obligation, which I I wouldn't dodge because it's part of my job to meet with one of our ABF teachers who maybe was going a little bit against where we were headed doctrinally and to clarify that and bring things into line. Our doctrinal truths are essential to who we are. Christians believe the truth and Christians have a creed and a doctrine. I say that to say this, the mistake everybody makes is we say Christians have a creed and a doctrine, but nobody else does. That's not true. Everybody has a creed and a doctrine. Case in point, I've got four routes when I leave my front door that I take my jog. Four different routes. My favorite one, my turnaround point is right in front of Christian's place. Yeah, but anyway, four different routes. And uh, on all four of those routes, In other words, there's not one of those four where I don't pass more than one house with a rainbow or the pride flag in front of it and the little placard in the yard that's like, it has six or seven creeds on it, love is love and all the rest of them and the rainbow writing. You know, everybody has a creed. Some people are upfront about it, loud about it, and some people pretend they don't have one, but everybody has one. The reason that we took a two and a half months to talk through these 10 questions that our culture is crazy about is because our mission and vision is to make and train disciples who make and train disciples. And we are recognizing that we are making and training disciples in a world that is actively and aggressively making and training disciples in the wrong direction. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This morning is our final question in this series of questions, and it's simply, what does the Bible really say about LGBTQ plus? What does the Bible really say about these things? We're going to begin in Romans chapter one. And as we prepare to open God's word, I'd ask you again to briefly bow with me for prayer. Spirit of God, as we open your word, we ask that you would convict each and every heart by the living truth of your word. Spirit of God, I pray for those church members here who who have a, a hatred in their heart toward persons who sin in these listed ways. I pray that instead of hatred, there would be genuine and godly love. In the spirit of God, I pray for those church members or those who attend here who are beginning to let go of what your word says about these issues of sexual morality in an effort to get along with the world. And I pray you would stop this drift by the clear teaching of your word. Holy Spirit, love divine, burn within this heart of mine, kindle every high desire, perish self in thy pure fire. This we ask for Jesus' sake, amen. Reading from Romans chapter one, beginning in verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason... covetousness, malice, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is God's good word, written for our well being here on this planet and for our eternal joy forever. To point out a couple of things, verse 24. Verse 24, therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Notice, The Bible says lust is not located in your hormones, it is located in your heart. That's significant. We don't think about that nearly enough. Point out from verse 26 for this reason, God gave them up to, the ESV says, dishonorable passions. And then immediately it speaks about female homosexual behavior and then male homosexual behavior. But it calls it there in verse 26, dishonorable passions. Another translation says shameful passions. Another translation says degrading passions. Think about that translation of shameful passions. The Bible says that when you engage in behavior of a homosexual activity, You're doing something of which you should be ashamed. The Bible says that. So this leads us to say that the, uh, irony is maybe a small word for it, The, the ungodly reversal of making the flag a rainbow and then making the moniker pride. It's ironic at best, It's an ungodly slap in the face of heaven at worst because the rainbow we know was God's sign that though he destroyed the world because of its wicked sexual perversion, he was not going to so destroy the world again by flood. And to call the moniker for the whole thing pride is actually the precise opposite of what verse 26 is saying that this is dishonorable and shameful. And instead of being ashamed of it and crying out to God for mercy and help to change, there's this drive that says, I'm going to celebrate this and I want everyone else to tell me that it's the opposite of shameful. It's something that we should be proud about. And notice also verse 27 says very, very clearly, "unnatural, unnatural, The men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. If you put verse 27, A and B together, it's the word of God, the good word of God that's meant for our health and well-being says this. The unnatural behavior of same-sex sexual activity that is an unnatural behavior that leads to, verse 27, natural consequences in the body, whether that's tissue damage or venereal disease or other natural consequences to such behavior. The Bible says here that it's a (laughs) reality-based thing. Notice that Romans one is remarkable because he starts by saying, which is quite a thing to say, this apostle who's writing inspired scripture, the thing he starts out with is basically he says this, you don't need the Bible to know this, which is a remarkable thing for a Bible guy to say. He says, this is evident in creation. Biblically, we'd call that general revelation, meaning you don't need a special word from God to know that this is wrong. It's a creational reality kind of thing. Even apart from God's special revelation in the Bible, everyone is born knowing that men are men and men cannot become women and women are women and cannot become men. Everybody is born knowing that. I think everybody's instinctive reaction when someone demands that I call them something that they're not, we know that that's manipulative and deceptive and controlling and unhealthy. We know that, naturally. What we study in Genesis in our ABFs recently, what Romans says here, is that there are moral truths. Uh, Christian philosopher Jay Budaszewski calls it the things we can't not know. The things we can't not know. And Romans 1 says it takes a special oh it takes a special ongoing level of God's judgment for you to become a person who acts like you don't know those things. That's what Romans 1 is saying. It's there in human anatomy without being explicit about it. It is obvious that the male and female are made to pair together and the female is not made to pair with the female, the male not made to pair with the female. It's obvious in the sense of ongoing human population. The the, the devil didn't create sex. Hugh Hefner didn't create sex. It's my contention that Hugh Hefner had no idea what sex was. He was an insane man. God invented sex and God's purpose for it, among other things, but his primary purpose for it was be fruitful and multiply. And so it's obvious on a natural level that if the men abandoned sex with women and the women abandoned sex with men, the human population would end. It's obvious on a natural level by God's natural created design. So why are we here? And why is the world so upside down about this? You see the answer in verse 23. We chose to exchange the glory of God For the glory of mortal man. And when we made that exchange, verse 23, verse 24 says, God gave us up to the lusts of our hearts. Then you see it in verse 25. We exchanged. We exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And because we made that exchange, verse 25, verse 26 says, God gave them up. You see it again in verse 27. The men likewise gave up or exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. And so verse 28 says, God gave them over to a debased mind. It is a biblical truth that God's wrath, listen to me, this is just, uh, it, it hangs on a little word. It is a biblical truth that God's wrath is revealed against sins like sexual perversion and homosexual sins. It is a biblical truth that God's wrath is revealed against those things. It is an equal biblical truth that God's wrath is revealed in those things, in those things. That's what Romans one is saying. That when God gives a person or a culture over to those things, that God's wrath is revealed, that instead of rebuking them, instead of stopping them, instead of tapping the brakes or pulling the emergency brake, God lets them go. And once, Romans 1 is saying this, isn't it? Once your wicked desires are not only in control of what you're doing, but once your wicked desires are in control of what you're thinking about what you're doing, then there's no stopping you. This is God's, uh, so to speak, divine abandonment. That's what this describes. And so American culture specifically has become a culture where verse 32 is true, that on a societal level, we are being... Uh, cajoled into, manipulated into, encouraged into, approving of all things LGBTQ+, instead of saying that these things are shameful. Now, let me say again, clearly, this isn't the first time I've said this. I think maybe this is the third time I've said this in these these 10 messages on these questions. But I want to say it again because it does bear repeating from one human being to another. I am not preaching these things because I don't love persons who uh, would say that they are LGBTQ And I'm not preaching these things because I don't like them. I not only love them because God tells me to love them, I like them. And they are welcome in my backyard when we're having drinks in the summer. They're welcome in my backyard when we're sitting around the fire in the winter. They're welcome in my home and in my house. I'm not preaching these things because their sins are damnable and mine aren't. My sins are equally damnable. I'm preaching these things because, frankly, of what verse 32 says. Married with Romans 12, 1 and 2, that because we've come a society that's pushing all the way toward this, if, if the church doesn't declare the truth about this, then everyone will be conformed into this way of thinking. And brothers and sisters, this ought not to be. Anyone with half an ear open knows that I'm not talking about this because I, I just... Um I don't know if I have time, but uh, w- when you all sent me to get my doctorate, I'll tell you a quick story. When you all sent me to get my doctorate uh, at Southern Theological Seminary, Dr. Al Mohler is the president there. And the first time that we met with him, he told us this story that's true. Al Mohler, you may, you may have seen him on CNN or whatever. He's like, he's the, he's like the evangelical thinker that, the, that they call when they want a, like an evangelical perspective on things. And, he told us that this was, he, he told us that this happened the last week. So he's telling us this story. He says, last Monday, uh, something, something happened with a, a, a man winning a woman's sports competition or something like that. And he was like, three or four news networks called me and asked me to comment on that. And then he said, Tuesday, there was another court case where something happened relative to gay marriage and three or four news outlets called me to comment on that. And then he said, Wednesday, something else happened in the culture. I don't know if it was Dylan Mulvaney drinking Bud Light or whatever. And three or four news organizations called me to say that. This was Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Then he said, Thursday, he said he got a call from the New York Times and they said, why are you Christians always talking about sexual issues? He's like... (laughs) Well, look, this is what you're calling me and asking me about, because this was happening. It's not, uh, with anybody with a half an ear open nose, this is not something that we can afford to be silent about. So to, let me talk technically about a Supreme Court decision for a second. And I don't, I don't do this because I'm a Supreme Court guy. I do this because it, it has direct bearing not only on Romans one, but also on 1 Corinthians six and other passages. Uh, In in 2015, 2015, the Supreme Court of the United States in the the decision of Obergefell, it's just the last name, the the decision of Obergefell, uh, redefined marriage. They uh, did not merely expand the definition of marriage to include a woman marrying a woman and a man marrying a man. But in that decision, in the majority opinion, the Supreme Court declared, declared that opposition to gay marriage is a discriminatory act motivated by animus. Animus means hatred. So they declared that opposition to so-called gay marriage is a discriminatory act motivated by animus or hatred. So it's not, this is also what was included in Obergefell, this technical language, but again, it relates to Romans 1, is what's called the, the dignitary clause, by the word dignity. They included it in the, the dignitary harm clause. That's significant legally because what they declared in that decision, which is the law of our land, is that to, uh, to, uh, for a citizen to believe and say, that marriage isn't something that a man can do with a man or a woman to do with a woman, is an attack, an attack on the human dignity of persons who identify as LGBTQ+. I mention that because many Christians, Christians are thinking about these issues in terms that the world has set, not in terms that God has given us in the Bible. And this is neither safe nor right for you, nor it will it ever enable you to love your neighbors rightly. These things matter. Now you can go back to the Freudian idea of sexual orientation, which says that what you desire is who you are. That's not true. But the Freudian idea of sexual orientation, that what I desire is who I am. It is my identity. And so we have this seismic shift in personhood. That's why this is the last one. I actually covered this when we talked about what are men, what are women, what is truth. We've talked about this a couple of times in this series. In other words, after Obergefell, LGBTQ plus describes who a person is rather than how a person feels or what a person does. And I'm I'm still left believing that LGBTQ plus is how a f- person feels, what a person wants and what a person does, but it is not biblically who a person is. And that's an important difference. That's an important difference. See, we would, I would, I say we, cause I assume you all agree with me. Maybe you don't, that's okay. Uh, we, we, we would say that that, Decision on gay marriage was the wrong decision. But we would likewise stand against any actual assault or actual violence against any person who's LGBTQ+. We would not actually want their dignity or their personhood harmed. We don't want that. But we're operating with a different definition of personhood and what harm actually is. I don't think they. they sh- I don't think that 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 folks who behave in these ways should necessarily be denied any goods or services. Like, but but it's a different world where if we fail to affirm and celebrate what they're doing, then we're the ones who are on the wrong side. It's not a presupposition that I can accept. I can accept. So. The categories, I get these from Rosaria Butterfield, who if you don't know who Rosaria Butterfield is, you Google that, you spend a day and a half listening to her lecture, that woman is like, I just love her to pieces. I get this from Rosaria. She has this important distinction between acceptance and affirmation. Acceptance and affirmation. This is where I'm still at. I can accept and love and share a meal with any person who's any LGBTQ+, whatever. Of course I can accept them as one human being accepts another. But I cannot be forced to affirm everything they feel, everything they think, and everything that they do. And by the way, this works on the other side of the table. If, if I've got a, 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 a family member or a friend who is or acting in LGBTQ ways, I wouldn't expect them to affirm everything I feel and believe. Of course they disagree with me. But we can accept each other without affirming everything about each other. And it's from my read of the reasoning in that Obergefell decision, our country, or at least the Supreme Court, part of our tripartite division of powers, at least the Supreme Court has, has severed that and said you, you can no longer accept without affirming. As Christians, we believe the truth of God's word and we, we happened to be in Genesis at the same time that we were covering these things from the pulpit and we, we talked a lot didn't we both in ABF and up here about Genesis 1 27 and 28 this is the truth God created man in his own image in the image of God he created him male and female he created them and God blessed them and God said to them be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And we celebrate together the truth of God's word. The church stands on God's truth. This is what we believe, Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. That is, if we quit confessing the church, souls would not be revived and simple persons would not be made wise. We dare not mute the truth. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The church stands on the truth so much that in 1 Timothy 3, one of my favorite descriptions of a church, say, what is a church? There's a lot of ways to answer that question. 1 Timothy three fifteen says the church is the household of God, the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. The church is the place where the living God dwells and the church is the place where the truth of the living God is placarded, pillared, held up to the world. We dare not let go of the truth. And the truth is what God has said about sex, manhood and womanhood, marriage, that's the truth, regardless of what the government says. Make the point from... Abraham Lincoln. I got, I'm a biography guy, but there's a tiny handful of people like Winston Churchill's one of them, Abraham Lee's another one, where I actually have three or four or five biographies of them in my library because they're so, they were such fascinating persons and they lived in such fascinating times that they're worthy of multiple angles of entry. Most, most folks, I can get it on one biography, but anyway, this is a point from Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln was not talking about uh the, the pride flag because that's of more recent vintage than Abraham Lincoln. But this is the point Abraham Lincoln made in in a in a speech. He was talking about government declarations. And he he said this, he asked the crowd, if if the government called the sheep's tail, you know a sheep, bah bah if the government called the sheep's tail a leg, how many legs would, a, would that sheep have? And the crowd said, five. And Lincoln said, four. Calling something, something else doesn't make something, something else. You see his point. You see his point. You know, he wasn't talking about marriage, but that's, that's really all I'm trying to say with my Bible open, is that naming things something different doesn't changing them. Doesn't change them. And if the Bible says that something is shameful and dishonorable, forcing everyone to declare that it's something that we should be proud of and that it's honorable doesn't make it any less shameful and dishonorable. Truth is true. No matter what government says, uh, I mean this, no matter what I preach from up here, truth is still true. We're all accountable to it. And so today, I don't believe I'm exaggerating when I say that somebody who submits to the created order, like men are men, women are women, people who feel that they're transgender, they need significant help, but they don't need surgical reassignment. Someone who believes that is uh, a dangerous, harmful person who's probably gonna cause people to commit suicide. While on the other hand, someone who treats God's creational categories as their own personal etch-a-sketch that they can just erase and rearrange however they want is humble and kind and affirming and the best kind of citizen that we could have. We really have turned upside down. But the church stands on God's eternal unchanging truth. And in our... In our world today, it really does come down to refusing to uh, declare the the world's lies right along line with them. Uh, what's true is true, no matter what. So I wanted to save time for perhaps the most important point, and that is this. What do we say to and how do we help someone who is committing these behaviors or leans toward these desires, what do we say to them and how do we help them? What do we say to them and how do we help them? Number one, that is a great question. Number two, for some reason and for the life of me, I can't figure it out. Some Bible teachers take great questions that have simple answers, and we needlessly complexify them with all sorts of gobbledygook that doesn't do anyone any good. So I wanna say the question, how do we help someone who, is, uh, who, who has been committing these kinds of sins or who's, who, who feels these kinds of desires? How do we help them? I wanna say that's a great question, and I wanna say the answer to that question is not hard to find mercifully made it so clear. The answer is not complicated. We help somebody who is same-sex attracted or we help somebody who is struggling with whatever, whatever in that cluster of issues. We help them with Jesus and with the gospel of his forgiveness, and with justification by grace through faith, and with the gospel promise that there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We help them with the good news of Romans 5 that while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We help them with the blessed good news that Jesus Christ died to save sinners. And then we help them with the the backside or the fruit side of that good news, which is that when Jesus justifies a sinner, Jesus sends his spirit into that justified sinner to sanctify that sinner. That's what Romans 6 says. Once you get saved and there's no condemnation, should you continue in sin? Now that grace may abound, may it never be. And we help them with the wonderful truths of sanctification, like the truths that are found so explicitly here in Romans 13. He says in Romans 13 let, let us cast off, Romans 13 verse 12, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Scripture tells us to repent of all sin and leave behind sin because it's bad and drop it because it's damaging. Scripture calls us to repent of every sin. If somebody, this isn't an if, I've talked to, I've talked to multiple somebodies who say, I, I don't remember choosing to not be attracted to the opposite sex. Far back as I can remember, I'm attracted to the same sex. You know, the scripture says that the Spirit of God can help you with unchosen desires. The Spirit of God is the one who knit you together. The Spirit of God can help you. We overcome this by how we overcome everything. Did you know that everyone who comes to Christ denies himself or herself to come to Christ? Everyone. That's why I mean we, we needlessly complicate this. Everyone who comes to Christ denies himself or herself to come to Christ. Everyone. So we overcome this sin like we overcome any sin. So I'm just gonna say for me, the other pastors may feel differently and that's okay. There are multiple ways to help people. But for me, I, I have come to believe that it is almost always a mistake when I'm counseling somebody, and I do, who's same-sex attracted, it's almost always a mistake for me to give them three books and six podcasts about same-sex attraction. Maybe one. <laughs> but I feel the same way about when I'm counseling someone who's struggling with the sin of bitterness. Why would I need to give her... 12 books about bitterness, so that all day, every day, she can think about bitterness. Maybe one to give them biblical categories to understand bitterness and forgiveness, but after that, what I need to give them and give them and give them and give them is nothing less than Jesus. 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 We need more of Jesus. We need faith in Jesus Christ. He's the one who changes us. We overcome sin. You know, Hebrews 12, laying aside every weight and the sin which so easily entangles us. Unchosen desires can easily entangle us. We lay aside those by looking to Jesus. He's better, he's better, he's better than anything else. I have a collection of quotes from uh, A.W. Tozer and the pages are falling out of it because he's like so quotable and this is maybe my favorite quote in that collection of quotes. I highlighted it in blue, which has a special meaning. But uh, this is what he says about faith, looking at Jesus. Listen, A.W. Tozer, oh, this is so good. Faith is the least self-regarding of the virtues. It is by its very nature, scarcely conscious of its own existence, like the eye, which sees everything in front of it and never sees itself Faith is occupied with the object upon which it rests and pays no attention to self at all. While we are looking at Jesus, we do not see ourselves what blessed riddance this. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. And you can begin to stop obsessing about yourself and your desires. If I could speak like like how... What would I say? And this isn't hypothetical. I, how, long have I been, how long have I been pastor here? I feel like it's like 82 years. You guys are so much to deal with, but it's not. It's more like 21, 22, something like that. But um, uh, I don't know. I think I could say every year, sometimes multiple times in the year, I'm meeting with folks who the, the, the same-sex attraction, like the, the, these are the issues that they're, they're struggling with. Um, what do we say? I just, I'll just talk like, like, like that's you. You, you. You're coming in to talk to me and you, you're like, I, 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 I'm not attracted to the opposite sex. I'm attracted to the same sex. What do I do? I would say, uh, I'm, I'm really sad and sorry for the turmoil and doubt and angst and difficulty that you're experiencing. It is difficult. It's probably more difficult than I can understand. It's probably more difficult than I can understand. But I know this. Jesus knows. Jesus understands. And Jesus made you. He made you. And, and, and Jesus cares about you. And Jesus wants to help you. And if Jesus made you a man, a male, Jesus did not make you to become a woman and he did not make you for any type of sexual or romantic attraction to males or men. He didn't make you that way and he he doesn't want you to live that way and he wants this for you because he wants what's best for you because he loves you. He wants your good both now and forever. And then I would talk about this word, repentance, repentance, because Jesus preached a lot but doesn't it mean a lot? The first thing Jesus preached, Matthew chapter four, after his baptism, the first thing Jesus preached was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And I would talk about repentance. And I would just say something like this. I know that giving up this thing that feels like it's who you are. I know that giving up this thing that you're deriving happiness or belonging from I know that repentance feels like a cost, but let me tell you something. You you might not believe this right now, but I promise you'll believe this later. Repentance is not part of the cost of the gospel. Repentance is the benefit of the gospel because when you repent, you let go of sin that is clutching at your throat and trying to drain the blood out of your body. Repentance is a blessing. Repentance is deliverance. Repentance is hope and joy. On this side of the Jordan, when we repent, it feels like we're giving something up, but we are only giving up death. When we get there, the call to repentance will sound like the sweetest call that we've ever heard because it was an invitation into life. It's a joy and a delight to be free of that which would separate me from Jesus. That's what repentance is. And when you repent, you have Jesus. And there's nothing and no one better than him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, have mercy on your gathered lambs. Lord Jesus, feed and water and care for and bind up the brokenhearted among your precious sheep. Let my teaching fall like the dew, like the rain on the new mown grass, that, that which is the weeds and the toxicity of sin would be removed and that which is the fruit of repentance and love for Jesus would grow and blossom for our Savior's sake. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.